Hello and welcome to the 1 Peter 5 Podcast, Episode 4. Today I dispense with the usual format and try something a little bit different. And then things get kind of weird. Do not mention Paul the Seventh. Do not mention Paul the Seventh. Do not mention Paul the Seventh. That smells like sheep. But there's no mention of Paul the Seventh because he doesn't really exist. He's just the consummation of all our worst nightmares. But you're you're still recording now? Crap! I better put my pants on. <laughs> well, it's not. You know, like there's you, no it's video, just audio. Right? Yeah, it's just audio. Oh, it didn't capture your soul. <laughs> Who are those guys? Yeah, I thought it captured my soul. The good news for everybody involved is that not a single word of what you just heard appears in the podcast. But we do talk about better things. Coming up next. You're listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. My name is Steve and I will be your host. So today I want to introduce a new segment to the show. And I suppose properly described, it's actually more of a, of a format change than a segment. Not a permanent one, but something I'd like to try out once in a while um, just to mix things up. So we're going to give it a test drive today. So what we're going to do is rather than interviewing a single guest, I'm going to be having a discussion with a couple. So in this case, two Catholic dads who will talk things out with me. We're talking the big issues of the day, the situations that we face at home that we find challenging, and so on. Whatever we have time to cover, we have a list of topics that we'd really like to talk about, and we're going to dig in and see where it takes us. So for lack of a better name, uh, for the time being, we're going to be calling this the 1 Peter 5 Roundtable. I know it's not exactly bursting with originality, uh, but it's a panel discussion, and I think that it fits and is subject to change at a later time. Anyway, on the podcast with me are Scott Broadway and Elliot Bogus. Scott is a contributor to 1 Peter 5 and a longtime personal online friend of mine. Scott is a cradle Catholic who went agnostic before reverting to the faith because of the Eucharist. He is a father to three boys and a database, cloud, and enterprise software geek by day. Elliot, who is also an online friend of mine, but of the more recent persuasion, is a convert from Calvinism. He's a multilinguist and former English as a second language teacher in the country of Taiwan. Elliot now works as a freelance interpreter and translator after spending some time in the trenches as a public high school teacher in Florida. He's a married father of two, going on three, and a surprisingly devoted fitness monkey for someone who is such an obvious nerd. He can beat you up and tell you who you can call to cry about it in at least four languages. Seriously, it's ridiculous. He also blogs under the nom de blog Cogitator at the website ebogus.wordpress.com. Don't worry about the URL. I'll put it in the show notes so you don't have to deal with the spelling. It's never fun to spell out URLs online. I mean, on the air. So... Anyway, welcome, gentlemen. And I got to start with the question that is most important, which is, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, we're going there. (laughs) You have Um, to go there. I mean, it's a Catholic dad's hour. Come on. Yeah. Well, I can only lose, I'm sure. I'm in such uh, esteemed drinking company here. I mean, maybe we should just get Scott's out of the way because it's going to bowl us all over. (laughs) Either that or we finish with his. I mean, 
We, I don't we, know. Well, you know, honestly, I'm just having some Heineken. I'm going. <laughs> I'm going old school, dude. I'm all right, Scott. Scott, it's all you. I'm drinking uh, Gordon's on the rocks, twist of lime, and a couple shakes of Fee Brothers grapefruit bitters. Naturally. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't even have to put any thought into it. It's all right there. It's the off. perfect narrative. He's got, he's got all these recipes tattooed on his arm. <laughs> ah. So uh, I am I am working on Dr. James Crow's Old Crow. Not the Special Reserve. Oh, no, that's not available in my local store. Uh, just the original Sour Mash Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. So that's oh, what I've go. got going on. So, Elliot, I yep. want to start with you. Because I want to hear more about your conversion story, because it's kind of unusual, right? So you were living in Taiwan, uh, which is a country with a very small Catholic population. You're working, you're teaching. And then how do you wind up becoming Catholic there? Well, um, first thing for all you geography nerds, Taiwan is not Thailand. Um, It's just (laughs) funny every time uh, I mention it, people say, oh, I love Thai food. But anyway, get that out of the way. Um, there's a lot involved. I mean, every conversion story is is weird in its own way, and it's they're all equally elaborate in their own ways. Um, basically, I was born Presbyterian, raised Protestant. Um, in high school, I became a very serious evangelical. In college, I became a very committed Calvinist, got very involved in the Reformed tradition, uh, Reformed theology, and then... And this is the very bare-bones version of some things I'm going to return to. But at some point, you know, I was so convinced of Calvinism and the reform principles and TULIP and all that, and therefore the falsity of the Whore of Babylon, you know, (laughs) the the papists and all that. I was like, well, I need to to know my enemy. Mm. I need to know exactly how wrong those Catholics are. I mean, they're obviously wrong, right? Because Bible or something, Calvin. But what exactly, you know, what... Did, how, what did they get wrong? I need to pick it apart. I need to. I need to at least be that intellectually honest. So I just started to look more seriously into early church history, and um, I, I took a. The, the fathers started to to kind of force me or jar me to read certain scripture passages, or really the whole of scripture, in a different way. I took a, I took a step back and said, "Wait a minute." Does that verse mean this? And, and these are standard things that all, all I think, Protestant sure. converts go through. Um, but basically, you know, there's a lot of you know, a- academic, intellectual issues that I had to work through. But as I think a lot of converts and even reverts will tell you, it's it really is all about the Eucharist. Mm. And I can remember two moments which they they were pretty pivotal. And one was I was I, I'd made a checklist of doctrines and issues that I was just going to systematically uh, research and sort of nail down and say, well, if I ever meet a Roman Catholic, boom, I'll I'll refute them because that's what Calvinists do best. They're not so much about. Um, I remember Paul Tillich. One thing that really struck me in his history of Christian thought, he said, he said that um, the, the greatness of Calvin's theological edifice is only undermined by the the absolute coldness of the God he portrays. And I was like, something to that effect. Basically, like, Calvinism would be perfect if only it had a loving God. And I was like, whoa. Um, Interesting. So anyway, these kind of things stuck with me, you know. But really, one of the issues was the Eucharist. And it was simple, really. I just 
I just I think it was Catholic Answers or something, just a standard boilerplate Catholic presentation of the Eucharist. By the end of the article, I was saying to myself, wait a minute, just assuming the Catholic teaching is true, who would who could reject that offer? Hmm. To 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 fathom that Jesus Christ Himself is offering Himself fully to us in the full capacity that we can receive Him on every level of our being as a sign, a sure sign of of, of His love for us. And I was like, wait a minute, whoa! Like the Catholics are still wrong, but holy cow, that sounds really good. Yeah, so that was that right. was a grappling hook, which really it, it got lodged in there. And honestly, I think it at some level I knew that everything after that was literally just academic. It was just working out the details because once that, you know, the Cupid's arrow type thing, once that I'd been pierced with that, it, it's true. I mean, it, I don't have a lot of mystical experiences. I try to limit them only to Mondays. No, but um, <laughs> that was, it was a sort of intellectual mystical epiphany where I said, wait a minute, if I'm a Christian, if I'm open to Jesus, then <laughs> the Catholics are presenting the most awesome telling of how he gives his life to us. And that really intrigued me. And I don't remember chronologically if it was before or after, but I, I was helping at my PCA church, Presbyterian Church of America. And um, no, this I, was still in Taiwan. No, no, this was all in college. Okay, and um, and I I was helping with communion, and uh, I was basically distributing the bread in in line as as other parishioners, you know, other Christians were, were coming up. And I was suddenly filled with this intense awareness. It was sort of, I could barely keep from shouting out. I was saying, take, eat, this is my body. I kept mm. hearing that. And I was seeing these people who I knew as the standard Reformed Protestants were just sort of having a spiritual connection with Christ, but they didn't see anything special about the actual act of, you know, sort of the substance of what, what was being being partaken of. It was just bread which reminded them or sort of enabled them as a community to have a deeper connection with Christ. But I was, I mean, I really felt I could almost, I sort of had this mystical awareness that Christ was trying to to be present in that bread. It was really strange. So anyway, I had those things which, which stayed with me. And then what happened is I graduated and um, I had already made a pledge that, to God that I was going to, within five years after graduating, I was going to serve at least one year overseas in missions and it happened i just got this email about a teaching mission and they offered places in china taiwan or japan and i said well japan's weird china's communist what is taiwan <laughs> and i was literally like what is taiwan i mean i knew things were made there but um but at the same time even as as soon as i saw that and again it was one of those i don't know call it mystical but to this day i, I really believe an angel tapped me on the shoulder and there was just this absolute certitude that I was going to Taiwan. I didn't know what it meant. I was pretty sure it was just a one-year commitment. It ended up being nine years. But anyway, so I went over there as part of a, an evangelical mission group. And we would, we would teach and serve in local churches. They'd help us get housed and situated and employed and all that. But here I am like covert Catholic because I really had very strong Catholic sympathies at that point. But what happened is our team, there were about 20 of us when we first got there. Within six months, half the team was gone. They'd either moved to different towns, gone back to America, just, you know, they were out. Right. So I had to stand in the gap, so to speak, and I became the um, the English outreach. I was the main preacher. I was leading this English outreach for, for Taiwanese, um, this Bible group. 
and it was interesting over the whole course of the two years that I was in that serving in that capacity. What I would do is, I would uh, it was again it was ninja stuff. I would draw ideas and and pretty much quotations from the fathers, and I would just drop them in what was otherwise a standard Bible thumping. Just see what happened. Yeah, and just and it was it was like, do Christians, do Protestants have this sort of allergic reaction to Catholic stuff and Orthodox things? And no. <laughs> right. It it all it resonated, so it was a perfect way for me to to test. This is the truth. These are the truths that Christians instinctively want to affirm because it it all it's the greater fullness. You Isn't know what it I mean? funny how our biases come into play? I mean, when when years ago I worked in in public relations and and I worked for General Motors, so it's an automotive manufacturer, and and their designers had kind of gotten control of the cars again instead of these boxes that got driven around that just looked horrible and were rebadged for every brand. They're making good-looking cars. And so what they do is they take them into focus groups, and it's a lot like what you're talking about, where they'd take the badges off the cars and they would show people just the design of the vehicle. And they'd say, what do you think? Would you buy it? And they loved the cars. And the minute they would stick the Chevy bow tie on there or the minute they'd put the Pontiac badge on, they'd be like, hell no, I don't want anything to do with that. Right. And it's because they had an association that was so strong, they wouldn't listen, you know, to what it was that even their heart was telling them of, I actually really like this thing. Mm-hmm. And sure. it's, it's just what it reminds me of is, is, you know, we have these biases that we bring to things that are just so hard to overcome. Yeah. And I had a lot of that. I mean, there were seeds that were planted even years before. Um, for example, uh, my dad had been born Greek Orthodox. And uh, he said he went through the crazy years in the 60s and 70s and all that. But um, at some point he became Catholic. And, you know, my dad has, he's a, he's a dad. He's a, he's a human. And and so he's not perfect. Neither am I. But I noticed, here I was, I was this confident little evangelical, you know, um, very committed Protestant. I thought, oh, my dad's a Catholic. He's whatever. He's just a pagan with a cross, you know. But over the years, I noticed he was actually changing. He was mm-hmm. actually becoming a mensch, like morally more <laughs> virtuous and actually spiritually savvy. And I was like, whoa, what's, how, what? That must be a false positive because Catholics can't be godly. And then another time, my mom, who I'm happy to say is, uh, has just begun her RCIA class. She's finally taken the leap. Congratulations. Yep. Um, she had bought a copy of the New Catechism. And so... I was like, oh, great, perfect. And I just thought, I was, I'm going to randomly flip open to any page and just spot an, a heresy. You know, it was sort of <laughs> whack-a-mole. I mean, I really was. Right, right, now, I want to see right. how many times does Mary show up and Jesus doesn't, right? But as I'm going through it, I'm reading stuff, and it's, it wasn't that repugnant. And then I'm looking at the footnotes, and they're citing the Bible. I was like, wait a minute. No, Catholics don't use Bible, right? So these little seeds just kept getting stuck in my mind, and, and finally, when the Eucharist really, you know, anchored, captured my heart, then I just I had this sort of uh, spiritual fire to, to lead me through the intellectual issues. And um, anyway, I, I, I was in that Protestant group for a couple of years, and then um, in 2005, I entered the church, and um, I helped with some. You know, English Bible groups at a Catholic university. I ended up writing a, a history of the university there. So I got to know some of the history of missions in Taiwan. And uh, anyway, so that's basically my story. Um, I but it's a tough place to start out, right? I mean, it, well, yeah. I mean, this the thing about it is it was it was very cerebral. 
because uh-huh. I was literally converting kind of on my own. I mean, yeah. there's just not a lot of positive feedback for, oh, yeah, cool, Catholic, and this is the Catholic Student Center. There's none of that. You basically read your way into Catholicism in a country that is, you know, single-digit percentage Catholic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and um, and that, on the one hand, that was a great relief because it, it, it freed me from all the uh, culture wars and, and sort of the typical assumptions and, and cultural patterns, I think, that like a lot of American Catholics just take for granted or have to face. I could just truly try to live out the faith without a lot of cultural pressure about, no, that's not how we do it. Um, and I just, there was a lot of simple piety there. Uh, at the same time, it was hard because it was very cerebral and isolated and it was kind of austere. I mean, it, it was, I was a convert in a con- in a converted area, sort of a mission area, which didn't have a lot of Catholic presence, but, uh, but God saw me through and, uh, you know, he always does somehow, despite right. my best efforts. Right, <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's interesting because the Eucharist is, I mean, it's really the hardest thing to grasp about the Catholic faith, above and beyond everything else. It's such an outlandish claim. It's such a unique uh, theological perspective amongst any of the world religions. There's really nothing else like it. Mm-hmm. And yet it seems to be more often than not when people can you know, see past the fact that John six is not a, a symbol, but it's a really literal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sense of my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. When they can get past the point of denial, it suddenly becomes a fascinating, uh, you know, an amazing compulsion for people. I mean, I have a friend who in college, he told me, um, his conversion story and, you know, he was in the air force and uh, grew up Catholic, but had lost the faith. And he's in, he's stationed in Germany and Mm -hmm. he has some friends from the base and he goes to visit them, you know, and he's in the punk rock scene and, you know, it's the nineties and, you know, they got all the, the bands are all playing in Germany because that's where, you know, the big heavy punk rock scene is happening and all this stuff. And, you know, but he goes to visit these friends and they give him, a pamphlet on the Eucharistic miracle of Longiano. Mm. And he's like, so out of courtesy, I took it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I went home that night and I read it. He's like, I, I opened that pamphlet an atheist and I, and I closed it a Catholic. Wow. And he said, it just happened that fast. And that guy is a priest today. It'll get you. Yeah. It'll get you. Yeah. But I mean, it just was such a rapid change. And yep. you know, I mean, it's miraculous. And you know, Scott, I, I mean, you say in your bio that the Eucharist is the means by which you had your reversion. How, I mean, how did you sort of get away from the faith, and then how did the Eucharist bring you back? Sure. Uh, so I'm from, uh, I'm from Florida, an area in South Florida where uh, it's not historically Catholic. It's maybe about 10% Catholic. Okay. Um, some of that is ethnic. Uh, others it moved there from, from the north. Um, so I was born to uh, a mom who was Catholic and a dad who was, well, was Methodist and they kind of agreed to raise the kids Catholic to get married. And yeah, I went, they, they got me baptized. They got both me and my sister. We were baptized. Uh, we went through first communion classes. I remember, um, singing the songs and, CCD in second right. and third grade. And I, I was mean, build the city of God on the boom box. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and 
then I became a little altar server, and that was fun for a while. And then confirmation classes came around, and I was in middle school and uh, early high school. And in those, I, 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 all of this public school, um, which is not an indictment of public school. I actually really am thankful for, for what I went through because I wouldn't be here otherwise. Um, but in in those venues, I started reading materials that, you know, questioned, you know, you know, why question God, you know, very modernist literature, novels, that sort of thing. Right. Um, then going through confirmation classes, it became evident that no one believed any of this. We were doing this to check off a box. Sure. Why, why was I going to, you know, meetings at the church with my mom and my sponsor every week if we weren't going to really learn anything? You know, what were, you know, we were just talking about, stupid stuff and filling out worksheets about how we felt uh, what it was always um, stuff about like martin luther king and random i mean social justice i remember that i remember sitting um, in those classes I, I i don't remember it being politicized at all i remember it being psychology mm. um and being totally empty i knew nothing about the eucharist here i was serving at the mass you know and, and you know really liking being an altar server I kind of had no idea what was going on. What did you like you know, about it? I, I, I really liked the routine about it. Mm. Uh, I really liked the reverence of washing the priest's hands. Um, you know, there was something about the priest's hands that was different. I could feel, I could feel that. Um, and there was later on that I, that I learned, you know, the priest's hands are what are blessed. Um, but I, other than that, I didn't get anything out of it. Um, so after I was confirmed... Um, I, I was confirmed by a man at the time, uh, Bishop, uh, Joseph Keith Simons. Uh, if you go back and uh, look at the history of it, he is the highest ranking official to have ever taken the fall for child molestation in, in the church. Mm. He actually molested children back when he was a priest and he took the fall for it in 1998. This was after I was confirmed and, you know, Ex operate uh, opere. Uh, hold on, did I screw that up with the ex, gin? Ex opere ex, operato. Yeah, and you're close. You were close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which, Steve, tell me what that means again. It means that in virtue of a sacrament being performed according to the matter and form of the sacrament, it is it is accomplished. So the priest's personal sanctity or worthiness has nothing to do with the efficaciousness of the sacrament. It has everything to do with him following the rubrics of the sacrament. Exactly. I was confirmed. You know, whether I, whether who I was confirmed by, I was still confirmed. Right. But but the politics of it still had an effect on me. Hmm. And and the literature that I was reading in class had an effect on me. And it was kind of like I don't believe any of this. So, you know, for a period of years there, you know, my my late teens, uh, early 20s, I didn't really believe in God. You know, I didn't, you know, I think I believed that there was something else out there. You know, I would maybe go to fr go to a church service with a Methodist friend, mm -hmm. but I there was nothing out there. Um, it took it took the closer to the end of college. Uh, I finally started going to to on campus um, Catholic ministry at, at my college, and that was different. Here was a community of kids that really wanted to be there that wanted to know more about their faith, 
But moreover, we had a priest who decided to center things around the Eucharist. You know, he he took over from from another colleague of his, and he decided, you know, we need to rebuild this. We need to expand it. You know, we need to get the word out that there's lots and lots of Catholics at this huge public university. They need to be here, and they need to see what we have in the Eucharist. Scott, you mind if I interject real quick? Sure. Yeah, the, um, that sentiment, that truth, just always strikes me. And and um, I went to World Youth Day in Cologne, um, in Germany, and I was. It was one of the lulls. It was between activities, and I was at a table, and there was this. I think it was a, I don't know, Benedictine monk or something. He'd been a computer scientist, a PhD in computer science, an atheist. He converted, and there he was as a Benedictine monk with the robe and all that stuff. And the only thing I really remember was he said, because there we were at World Youth Day, all about evangelization and outreach and how do you, you know, the gospel and all that. And he said, the Eucharist is the greatest means of evangelism the church has. It's it's the only real, f- sure way of evangelizing because when Christ he said, when I am lifted up, when I am raised up, I will draw all men to myself. And every time at, at the Mass, when I see the priest raise the consecrated host, I just think of that. And that really stuck, again, that stuck with me. There I was a Catholic already, but it always came back to the Eucharist. And, I, and that's something I just, I don't mean to go off here, but I don't know why it has to be so complicated. How did it take you years of wandering to finally find a priest who said, look, let's get back to the Eucharist and everything flows from that? Yeah. You know? So anyway. it, it was um, no, I, I agree. The and it didn't. I didn't go from being, you know, my old self to being this perfect Catholic overnight. It, you know, I very much brought with me my old political opinions about, um, you know, I you know I really don't think abortion is that important, and I really don't think you know voting for Democrats is is that bad. And, you know, I that sort of stuff stuck with me for a while. But the more that the more that I learned from my colleagues um, at, at mass and and from the priest, it convicted me. Uh, I mean, it it totally changed. You know, I I had to learn what what it was to be a Catholic. You know, it's what is it? No love, serve. You first have to know. Mm. And mm. and that's where I was starting out in late college. You know, I I needed to be catechized. Um, but it wouldn't have happened had I not first recognized and known that that's Jesus in the Eucharist. You know, it's interesting, Scott. Hearing you talk about this, it reminds me a lot of my own father who left the church when he was a, a teenager. It would have been probably in the mid to late 1960s um, because he had some of the same questions and he reached a lot of those same conclusions. I mean, it was like, I don't really think any of this stuff is important. And I ask questions and the nuns tell me that I'm impertinent for asking the questions. And I feel like there needs to be a reasonable basis for faith and all that. But what's interesting is he always said, now he had a miraculous conversion where he came back to the church and it happened because my mother, when they were dating, basically forced him to go talk to a priest and he did it in a patronizing way and found himself on his knees giving his first confession in a decade and not understanding what had just happened. But he always attributed this to the fact that he had a devotion to Mary when he was a a boy in Catholic school. Um, I think he went to Catholic school, but either way, he walked by the Catholic church every day and he would always stop 
and say, you know, Hail Mary or three in front of the statue of the Blessed Virgin. And he says that he's always attributed being brought back to the faith uh, with that Marian devotion that he had when he was small. And he always felt that Mary was the one who lured him back. I mean, are you, are you Marian? Were you Marian? I definitely was not a Marian at all. I ha- I really, I had no idea who Mary was. And quite honestly, back in those teen years, you know, when I ever, whenever I went to, you know, a Methodist service or something, it became very Jesus-centric. You know, why can't I just go to Jesus? Right. Um, and, you know, during, during my, you know, con- you know, reversion back to the faith, uh, Mary really convicted me. Uh, there's no explanation for it. Uh, you know, I didn't, I can't even, I can't even say at, at, you know, 22, 23 years old that I could recite the Hail Mary from mm. memory. I, I didn't know the mysteries of the rosary from memory. I had to learn all of it again, mm. you know, because I never, I've never absorbed any of it. Right. But then again, it's Well, how many families say the me. rosary? How many families say the rosary even now? I mean, yeah, very but, few families say it together. So I mean, kids aren't learning it. Mm-hmm. But tr- but truly, who is Mary? You know, right. I never I never learned who she was and why she was different. Mm-hmm. You know, we we had you know ha- we had a feast this week. You know, the, the nativity uh, of of uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, today, that registers with me very strongly because I have a, a son who was born on the nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. which awesome i i would have never realized the significance of this feast if he hadn't arrived on that day that's cool. um, but never had anyone been born that was without sin mm-hmm. going back to adam and eve yeah they were they were conceived without sin but the but the you know the most recent one was eve herself mm-hmm. the next one to come without sin was mary the new eve Mm-hmm. Right, correct. Uh, yep. So, so the um, so yes, I, I Mary did register with me, and I have no explanation for it. Uh, you know, I did have friends that that really got into Marian apparitions, mm-hmm. and I I have to admit, back in back in those years when I was learning about the faith, I had no idea what the apparitions were. I had no idea what Lourdes was or Fatima or, or Guadalupe or any of it. Mm-hmm. The um, the it didn't make sense to me. Why would Mary appear? You know, we're, we're worshiping Jesus here. You know, Mary is good, but is, you know, are her, are her apparitions some sort of impediment here? You know, that was my, that was my, you know, feeling at the time. Um, you know, later on after, after, you know, lots of prayers, you know, I totally fell, totally fell in love. Um, but, you know, later on, you know, when I, when I met Steve, uh, you know, Steve and I actually have something in common. We've both been to Guadalupe. Mm, yeah. uh, jealous, and, jealous, jealous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've actually been twice, but I've, ah, you know, just man. to rub it in, I got an extra one Well, then I've been there you. by proxy. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did an extra one for my homies. I did an extra one for you. All right, all right. All right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, it's uh, sort of October season right now. You know, we don't want to totally, you know, give away the, the Guadalupe season in December. But I, you know, I did want to, I did want to explain, you know, why Guadalupe you know, was really important to me. Yeah. Um, you know, it, at least to me. You know, I traveled there a couple of years ago. Uh, I had booked a trip. Uh, luckily, a trip to on on work uh, to a suburb outside of Mexico City, um, 
that that second week of December, right during the feast. And I knew I can't go on the feast day. It's too crazy. There's so many pilgrims going down there. Uh, Mm. And back then, I knew kind of what Guadalupe was. I knew Juan Diego appeared to... uh, uh, Excuse me. I knew Juan Diego was an Indian that Mary appeared to and you know to convince the bishop Mary drew a beautiful image of herself on his tilma on his you know mm-hmm. woven uh, agave cloak, cloak exactly yeah. um, as a message to the bishop that this is real that that you know Mary herself you know speaks to the people of the Americas and claims them for her own uh, I I knew some of that stuff, but again, go go back to my background. I grew up in Florida. Guadalupe to me was something that you spray painted on the front of a car, <laughs> yeah. or something, or a, something you had on a T-shirt. Right. I didn't get it. I thought it was some ethnic thing. Mm. Um, it never, never registered to me until I went there. Uh, so we went, you know, maybe three or four days after after the feast, maybe the the fourteenth or fifteenth, I forget which. Uh, just after things died down, it still took two and a half hours to get there by car. We're talking twelve miles from from you know, the hills up in <laughs> in south southwest Mexico City to Guadalupe, which is a little bit north of downtown. Hmm. Um, you know, the the roads there are that crazy. Solid traffic <laughs> the entire time. Worst traffic in the hour, world. Worst traffic. Two in the world. and a half hours. It, <laughs> Two and a half hours, and you know, I'm—I don't know where it is. That my driver, you know, he doesn't know where it is. Wow. I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, where we Which go. Which is pretty we, amazing that he doesn't know where it is. No, no, he's been there years and years ago with his family. Oh, uh, but so he's not somebody who lived there. Yeah, yeah, he lives oh, okay. outside the city, works okay. in there, but he agreed to take me. Right. So we finally find the place. We finally find, you know, okay, let's park underneath under this parking deck under the square. Um, we get out. It smells precisely like sewage. Um, <laughs> and the and the first thing that we see when we get get out into the garage is gift shops. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. oh wow, this is a tourist destination. Mm. Um. So then then and there's this take, huge plaza. This, this huge plaza. So we take the metal stairs up to the second level onto the plaza, and the first thing I see as I get onto the plaza. The doors to the basilica are open, and I see her right there. I mean, mm. it's 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 plain as day. Yeah. The image is not large. No, and it's not. It's not at all. I I see her, and you can see the gold, and you can see the blue, and it's brilliant blue. Mm. Uh, it was amazing, and it's it, five hundred years old plus. Yep. Oh, it, way before Lords, way before Fatima, uh, you know. Bombed, burned, folded, tested. Yeah. Oh, it it happened so long before all of that. You know, I I do want to discuss you know some of the miracles about it, but but uh, you know Steve, tell me you know how your visits there because I I know your visits are a little bit more earthy than mine. The, the first visit that I went, um, it's kind of a a faded memory. I don't really remember. I was in Mexico for something else. I think. Uh, I was working at the time I was working with the legionaries of Christ. And I think we took a trip down to Mexico, um, with a bunch of boys and 
we were just kind of doing the tour, the rich kid tour that you did when you worked with the Legionaries, you know, and we went to all these different cities and saw all these different things. And it was a lot of fun, but it was very fast. And so it didn't have the aspect of pilgrimage for me. Um, and so it didn't stick in the same way. Um, you know, I remember being there. I remember not being able to get into the old basilica that was there because it had been, you know, the whole thing's uh, built on a swamp, you know, and so it had been damaged and all this it, kind of stuff. And it lists to the to the to the right really badly. Yeah, right. You look at it; it looks like it's going to collapse at any minute, and it probably is. <laughs> so what ends up happening though is I go back again in I think it was 1998. So it's my my end of my fall semester in Steubenville, um, and I have a couple of friends who say we want to go drive drive from Steubenville to Mexico City for the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So I try as hard as I can to get out of my final or to move my final for one of my classes, my one of my radio and TV production classes, and the professor just will not budge. He's just one of these process guys. He just won't do it. And he, and he's a Protestant besides. So I think maybe he was like, yeah, I don't know if you're going to go for that. Um, but the, I couldn't, the, what's the that? internet? The internet says that that is 2,300 miles. <laughs> it's a long trip and it's a long 2,300 miles. It's 2,300 miles approximately from DC to Phoenix. I can make that trip in three days with no problems. This different story. So, so anyway, uh, you know, and I tell my friends, I'm like, I don't have any money. I mean, I'm out. I, I haven't, you know, I spent all the money I had this semester. I didn't have a good job last summer, whatever. I cannot pay for fuel. I can't pay for food. I can't pay for any of this. You don't want me to come with you because I'm just going to be a leech on the whole trip. And they're like, no, you've got to go. You have to come with us, you know. So two other friends, they convinced me to go. So I finished my last final. And I can't remember, but I think, I'm not, I'm not certain, but I think I finished it on the 8th, which would have been the you know 8th of December, Feast of the Immaculate Conception, leaving us exactly three days to get to Mexico City. So I, I practically run back from my final. We eat dinner. We pack up this little Nissan pickup truck that's really a two-seater, and we're three big guys. Uh, there's a cap on the back of the pickup truck. We throw a mattress in the back so that we can alternate sleeping in the back because we're not stopping because that's the only way we're going to get there, right? So... And we get on the road and we drive and we drive and we drive. And, you know, we're in St. Louis in like 12 hours, you know, we're just going and going and going. So we keep going across the country and the, and the first part's a blur. And we make it finally to San Antonio. And then the truck breaks down. The muff, like the whole muffler and exhaust system went on the truck, you know. So we have to stop and, you know, you're, you're coming from Steubenville and you, you know people all over the country, you know. So there was a family that we knew, one of the other students at Steubenville who had gone home for Christmas break or whatever, and she was like, yeah, come stay with me. So that's fine. So we literally stayed at her house while we tried to get the truck fixed. Took all day. We didn't get on the road again until the next night. And then we go for the border. We get to the border, and they won't let us across without a bond, you know, because they don't want the vehicles going into the country. And they say, you know, you can do it in a credit card. But we're, you know, 19, 20 years old. None of us has a credit card at this point because it's not 2014 where kids that age have credit cards. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we're like, well, we don't have a credit card. And they're like, well, it's going to be $300 for this bond. I tried everything I had in my arsenal to charm those cute girls at the Mexican border into letting me across without it. But it just wasn't going to fly. Uh, and we almost gave up. We almost went back. 
Um, and my friend Tomas said, you know what? I really want to do this. My family is Mexican. I've never been to Mexico City. I really want to go. I'll pay for it. But I don't have the money right now, so you're going to have to spot me. (laughs) (laughs) So my friend Paul, you know, being the mensch that he is, you know, he's like, all right, let's do it. Let's go. So we went. And it was a crazy trip. I mean, it's driving through Mexico is unlike any experience I've ever had anywhere. And I've been to a lot of different countries, but it's just the roads are crazy and there's potholes that can swallow cars and, you know, a truck breaks down and they just leave it right in the middle of the highway and there's no lights. You know, I mean, you you see it as you come up on this 18-wheeler and you're like, I better get over or I'm going to crash into the back of that thing, you know. And you're just going and going and going. And then there's, there's roads that literally there are bridges out And rather than there being safety cones and, you know, caution signs and all, they just put a string of Christmas lights across, (laughs) you know, the end of the bridge. It's the only thing saving you from plummeting to certain death. And the great thing about a trip like this, though, is you pray like crazy. I mean, I know people go, you know, I published uh, the story a couple weeks ago of Father uh, Kenneth Allen's uh, pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, and it was on foot. And there's a lot to be said for a pilgrimage that's done on foot and the uncertainty mm-hmm. that goes with that and the sort of the physical trial. But but even driving to Mexico City from the United States is a grueling experience because you just don't know what's going to come next. You're getting pulled over by corrupt cops that are trying to extort money from you. You're being stopped at military checkpoints and there's 16-year-olds with machine guns, you know, and they're poking <laughs> around in the back of your your vehicle and my friend paul he sleeps like the dead and there was this one i don't know where we were we were out in the middle of nowhere and we're at this military checkpoint and there's you know they've got the sandbags and machine guns and everything and they come they start searching the back of the truck and he's asleep and he's huge he's this big german idaho farm boy just solid you know and he starts kicking this little guy with a machine gun in his sleep because the guy's poking around him you know while he's sleeping and this is a guy who could sleep through a fire alarm like it doesn't matter he just doesn't wake up and i was like we're gonna die right here wherever we are on the border (laughs) of these two mexican states yeah no i don't think so you know i don't think we even got that far Uh, and i'm just pleading with the guy you know with the spanish that i had because i was the best spanish speaker of the bunch and i was like we're just trying to go to our lady of guadalupe in mexico city it's all we're doing just trying to get there and it worked every time. I mean, every time I told them that story, they were like, ah, go ahead and go. Ah, uh, well. So, I mean, the credibility of, you know, the fact that this is a, a national holiday for the Mexican people. You know, they're mm. just like, all right, do it. And as we got closer and closer and we're driving through the mountain towns and things like that, I mean, we were seeing on the 12th, which is the actual feast day of our Lady of Guadalupe, we're seeing these parades and processions through the towns and people are like carrying torches and they're doing they're wearing the shirts i mean and we're talking mountain fog that is so dense that vehicles are literally going over the side of these switchback trails because there's no guardrails or anything like that i mean you know people are driving off the edges of cliffs it was terrifying and I, i remember when i was there i remember when i was there you know we were up in the hills and the week that we were there, we would see these people walking from the hills into the city, and I knew where they were going. And it's like, wow. Yeah, they're all going to the same place. Yeah. And it's and, and it's a huge deal. I mean, and they literally have, like, these diesel torches. I mean, it looks like they're going to burn Frankenstein, you know, and they're just all marching together. And so The other you know, thing that they had was the floats, the little... The, the little, yeah. These little floats that they, that they bring. It's like a litter that they carry with the shrine and... Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's and, incredible. You know, they park them. They park them in the basilica. Of you know, hey, this is my little city. We built this float with these flowers on it, and you know, you know, here's the name of our little organization that came here on pilgrimage this year. Uh, it was it was incredible to see you know during mass these people standing proud of their floats, you know, in the basilica. Yeah, yeah it's a huge deal. So, I mean, we drove and drove and drove, and we got we got to Mexico City the night of the twelfth. I mean, literally driving around the clock. We made it there in three days, even with the stop in San Antonio to fix the truck. And they um, offer masses around the clock. Well, the problem was, because of the festivities, they closed the Basilica at 9 o'clock that night. And we oh, literally oh. got there like 9.30. Oh. So the gates were locked and you couldn't get into the plaza. And we all just stood there, you know, holding on to the <laughs> links of the fence going, gosh, we were so close. You know what, though? She knows we're here. We made yeah. it. We yeah. made it here. It counts. We're here on the feast day. It's fine. So we got yeah. some terrible, awful-smelling hotel that was cheap, and we slept in our clothes because we were scared to death of getting under the covers. And then we went in the morning, and we went there. And, you know, I went on this pilgrimage because there was something particular in my life at that point that I was struggling with. It was a big kind of mental and spiritual battle that I was dealing with. And it was something that I'm not going to go into, but it was something that I was just feeling like, you know, it was something about me that I didn't know how to change or, or, or what to do about it. And it was really feeling like it was dragging me down. And I remember going and standing before that image and just, you know, making the pilgrim's prayer, essentially, and asking for the petition that I had. And I just heard this voice in my head, you know, and you, when you hear those voices in your head, you're always like, was that me or was that real? But I mean, it felt very insistent. And it said, you are who you choose to be. You know, and I will bless you for that. And it was just sort of the sense of the thing that I had brought there was this feeling of, you know, my life was going in a certain direction and I had no control over it. And I was just being reassured that God had given me the freedom to be who I wanted to be and I could choose it and embrace that grace. And I never really struggled with that thing the same way I did after that. Um, so, I mean, there was really, you know, a very salutary grace that was associated with it. Uh, and the rest of the trip, you know, we went and we toured Mexico. I mean, by the time I got back home, I'd done 11,000 miles in two weeks on the road. But um, it was one of the most fantastic experiences of my life, you know. And I can't speak as much to sort of the miraculous things that, that you know, Scott, you could probably talk about that happened in the Basilica because it was a whirlwind tour. I mean, we were in, we, we were out. We did manage to bribe somebody to let us into the old Basilica which was amazing. <laughs> well, we didn't oh know it gosh. was, we didn't know it was a bribe. This guy comes up to us and says, Hey, do you want to come in? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, we'd gosh. love to go in, you I know? So, yeah. So we follow him in and he shows us this, this high altar that's made out of solid silver. I mean, it's just silver, Whoa. you know, stem to stern. And so we're standing there and we're marveling at what's going on. And we're like, wow, we didn't think we could even get in here. And then he just like sticks out his hand like, so where's the money? <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, okay, it's worth it. We'll give you some. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so, but what I want to hear about though, Scott, is tell me a little bit more about the miracles because I know there's stuff in the Basilica. There's this really cool crucifix. There's stuff I've seen, but I don't really know the story on it. So what do you know? Yeah. So there's two, well, if you start out, Guadalupe itself was a miracle, you know, simply, simply the Virgin Mary appearing and imprinting her image and, you know, convicting the bishop that, yes, you know, this is, you know, this is, you know, my image 
and that I love these people, that accomplished more than all of the Spanish armies ever could. I'm pretty sure 8 million conversions in the following years. It was was ridiculous. I mean, Our Lady accomplished what armies could not. And as a result... You know, Catholicism is the indigenous religion, essentially, of Central and South America. And there's something to be said, by the way, for the symbolism of she who crushes the head of the serpent. Because let's remember, the serpent god of the Aztecs, Quetzalcoatl, Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a very demonic god, and he was a serpent god. Mm -hmm. And so this Mm -hmm. idea that she is the one who crushes the head of the serpent is not an interpretation that should be lost on anyone. It was extremely providential. I mean, it was straight up providential. It was like yeah. sticking it right to their old pagan uh, ideas. Yeah. Uh, and she, she also appeared in their flesh, and she appeared with images on, on, what she, on the garment she was wearing that made sense to, to you know, those who looked upon it. You know, the, the symbols on, on, her, uh, on her garment... You know, the placement of those symbols mattered as well. You know, you can look into those as well. I don't have time to go into that. Uh, but all of the symbolism of, uh, of uh, the tilma itself is astounding. Yeah. Then, then the second miracle is it has lasted to this day in- inexplicably you know, and kept all of its color. You know, when, when I visited, the, the amazing thing about it was it was more brilliant than any depiction I ever saw of it, you know, you know, okay, yeah, I've seen like the neon versions and you know like the artistic version. The 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 realistic thing about the image, the blue is tremendously beautiful. Mm-hmm. The gold is real gold. It it shine it shined to me across the the plaza. You know, the first time I I gazed upon it. And the basilica is um, huge too. I mean, this is. You know, this is not an example of classical architecture. It's a big, round, huge. It's an space. arena. It, yeah. it fits ten thousand people inside, and maybe thirty to forty thousand in the square. It's huge. Uh, so, the, I mean, the second the second miracle is that it has lasted so long; it hasn't deteriorated. And then, then we get to the next miracle. You know, this happened long, long, long ago. Uh, in in you know, fifteen fifteen thirties uh, was was the actual appearance, mm-hmm. but then you know it wasn't it wasn't very obvious to the Vatican that this was a miracle. Uh, so what happened was you know Saint Pius the Fifth was on the throne, and what it, wasn't he involved in? Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> you know, Saint Pius Saint Pius the Fifth was on the throne. But we have this crisis of Europe in that we, we have these invaders of the Ottoman Empire, the, the, these Muslim invaders, that they're on, you know, they're on the steps of Europe, they're invading. And we have this army that uh, – I'm sorry, we have this navy that's, uh, that's raised uh, and the Battle of Lepanto. Look into the Battle of Lepanto, some of the history around it. Uh, I can't, you know, go into all the history around it, but the way Guadalupe relates to this mm. is that the Archbishop of Mexico had a copy of the image sent to Philip II of Spain, and Philip II of Spain, as soon as he realized what he was looking at, he's like, "This image has power. I'm mm. going to send it with the fleet to fight at Lepanto." 
they prayed before the image the night before the battle. They were greatly outnumbered. And the Battle of Lepanto, they won. They mm-hmm. turned back. They turned back the the, the Ottoman navy, the, the Muslim navy that was going to try to take over and you know take over the rest of Europe essentially, and it stopped there. Wow! You know, it was it yep. was Our Lady of the Rosary uh, that they, they they invoked specifically. They don't. They didn't really know who you know Guadalupe was. They just right. knew, hey, there's this image from the New World that was sent back. You know, supposedly she appeared. Um, and so that that was the second miracle. Is that I'm sorry. The, the, I guess the third miracle in, in my chronology of the Battle of Lepanto, mm-hmm. in, that, in that the you know the armies of Europe won. So the, the next miracle is happens hundreds of years later, 1921. You know, we, we fast forward. You know, uh, you know the Russian Revolution has happened. Uh, Fatima has happened. Uh, and you know we have this this influx of you know revolution and modernism into Mexico. In you know November of 1921, uh, a man at, at that point the image was in that old basilica that Steve mm-hmm. was talking about, the one with the the big silver high altar, you know that, that I really want to go into that I wasn't allowed into because uh, I didn't bribe anyone. Sorry, um, you got to know the right people. I mean. Uh, so that was where the image was stored at that po- at, at that point. So a man walked in and you know went to venerate the the image uh, near the altar, and he stopped to place flowers because that's what you do. The biggest thing about Guadalupe is you offer her flowers. Um, so he he makes an offering of flowers, places them in a vase near the image. But that's not all that was attached to the flowers. He puts a bomb inside of this urn to hide it. And then he quietly leaves. And after he gets out of there, the bomb explodes. The The bomb shatters all of the stained glass inside of the, inside of the basilica, the old basilica. You know, it, it's amazing that you know, this urn is right next to the image and also right next to the image is a crucifix, you know, a, a tall, uh, a tall crucifix. The miracle is that, and it's made out of bo- solid metal, right? I mean, is it the, the crucifix. Oh yeah, so so the crucifix is metal. I mean, you know, actually, absolutely gold, brass, you know, that sort of thing. And the image at this point, and this is 1920s, it was behind glass, but it was sort of in a picture frame. You know, it, right? It, there wasn't it, really it a might- security perimeter. No, there was not. There's no such thing as bulletproof glass. You know, there was nothing like that. You know, everyone who came knew to venerate the image, except this anarchist. Uh, so the bomb explodes, blows out all the windows. Uh, you know, hurts people. Uh, the uh, it, it blew up blocks of marble um, across the street. Uh, it blew out windows, and then they started digging out the rubble. Because they think you know, this this image that at this point is almost 400 years old is completely lost. Mm. They find two things. Number one, the image itself is unharmed. The glass itself is not broken. It, that's inexplicable. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that the crucifix was not damaged. It was bent back, but it's not damaged. The I mean, crucifix... It- it's amazing when you see it. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's just 
like that's it's one of the most profound things. It's the kind of thing that you just stop and you stare at because the crucifix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it literally has this look like it's bent, like it embraced the blast in order to protect the image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the image, the the crucifix where I saw it, it was at the, uh, you know, at the Metropolitan Cathedral at the Zocalo, uh, in you know, nearby Mexico City. You know, not not at the at the Basilica any longer. Uh, but near the near the major sacristy, which is built on a, one of the Mexican pyramids, um, but uh, incredible that this crucifix was unharmed. Yeah, um, that was that was the last miracle that I'll discuss about about Guadalupe. You have to see it to believe it. I'll actually I'll I'll also put a link to the to an image of that crucifix in the show notes because it's something yeah. you've got to see. I mean, it's incredible. It's also at, at the top of. Uh, you know, it, at the top of Elliot's blog, you know, all, all of a sudden, you know, after not not knowing Elliot for a while, I, I look at his blog. Wow, that's I've seen that. I've seen that with my own eyes. Wow. Um, so, you know, really, all of these all these miracles attributed to Our Lady. <laughs> it's amazing. Totally I never realized convicted. that he had that there. Yeah, all of these m- miracles can you know totally convicted me. I, I came back realizing. Our Lady loves the people of the Americas deeply. Yeah. If she appeared to us long, long ago, and she told us that she loves us and that that we are her own. Uh, yeah, it, it, totally incredible. It's not some little ethnic thing. It's not some you know, it, it, I don't know. It, yeah, if I it's truly incredible. Yeah, I fully. I mean, I totally agree. Like as a as a convert, again, Mary was one of those kind of tough hurdles. Just like, again, I've got Jesus, I've even got the Eucharist, I'll deal with the Pope, but why do I have to worry about Mary? Isn't that, it's just kind of weird, you know, just, oh, I have this extra add-on. But anyway, I, I really agree that Guadalupe completely deepened my understanding and devotion and just appreciation for Mary. I mean, when you really start to look at the Tilma and the miracles involved, it's not just the explosion in 1921, it's not just the apparitions to Juan Diego, the very construction and substance and details of the image and the fabric, it, it's just mind-blowing. How uh, sometime, I think, 1780-something, acid was spilled on it, didn't damage the, the tilma or the image. It's been exposed to candles and a salty air and just open exposure for hundreds of years, and it's still in pristine condition. And this condition. material usually only lasts at most twenty or thirty years, right? I mean, right, fifty at the outset. And and the, the details. I've even. I mean, I read a few books about it. I really got into it. And there's even some indication that that there's a reflection in her cornea of Juan Diego that you can see details reflected. That it's almost, in a way, it's sort of like the. Um, the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. yeah her eyes are be, open. Right. They're yeah. open. And, and just the, the, the perspective of the artists, you know, they can't make sense of how it is so lifelike, so to proportion, and just, and yet also so durable. But, you know, the, the point I want to make is that it is about love. And that's what Our Lady always teaches us because one of the, um, the main things that stuck with me when I, I, I started to look at Guadalupe was the point she made to Juan Diego that she says, I embrace you in the folds of my garment because she has this big robe on you know in in the image and that's her and it's got it's covered with the stars i mean no i apparently those might have been added a little bit later i don't know but the point is her robe is a way of she enfolds us in 
her her grace as she's so deeply connected to Christ and and that's huge because it is I mean that's yes the miraculous the marvelous but what really converted Mexico it was this sign of love yeah you know and and it's interesting you talk about Lepanto and how you know Our Lady of the Rosary you know one one well let's call it traditional but old uh, devotion is making a bouquet a prayer bouquet and, a spiritual bouquet, yeah, right, yeah. And, and and the flowers, how, and, and from what I've read, that that even where Juan Diego encountered her, there were roses blooming in an arid desert that were never there. They they in just the sprouted, winter. yeah, in the winter time, yeah. And the, the roses fell out of the tilma when he showed it to the bishop. So, again, this is hugely providential, and it's funny um, to kind of get back to, again, I, I I was a Calvinist, divine providence, predestination, all that is huge, and. Things like this, they completely scoop Calvinists on, 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 on providence because the Catholic Church, the Church is just bursting with these signs and wonders and these connections, which are God is constantly showing us all things work together for the good of those who love God. The, the, the roses, how they're connected to the rosary, how it's a chain of roses, which is not only a sign of love, but becomes a chain sort of for the Battle of Lepanto. I mean, it's it's all, it's just awesome. Yeah. And it's just sad that it is, it is marginalized as, oh, that's what Mexicans do, or, oh, that's what, that's kind of obscure and just, that's an old custom or an old legend. No, it is a phenomenal miracle, and I, I'm hoping I can go there someday. I want to change the topic a little bit. Something that I have written about this week is... Um, you know, about the idea of labeling ourselves as Catholics. Um, you know, this idea of I'm conservative, I'm traditional, I'm liberal, I'm left, I'm right. But, but we were losing through all of that, this idea of what Catholicism really means, I think. And, you know, it was, someone put it to me this way, and I wish I had written it. Uh, but he said, the danger is that, you know, being a traditional Catholic, let's say, it sounds like a flavor of being Catholic, as if there's any other way to be Catholic. And there isn't. I mean, we think with the mind of the church. And this consistency that needs to exist from the past to the present, I mean, look at the way that we're talking about Our Lady of Guadalupe. This happened in the 16th century. You know, look at what's going on, you know, and the connection with Lepanto, this this idea within the Church of continuity. And Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, he talked about the hermeneutic of continuity all the time. Um, and I felt sometimes, and I, I'm open to being corrected on this, but I felt sometimes that he asserted the hermeneutic of continuity with such vigor, almost because he wanted himself to believe that there was continuity between the preconciliar and the postconciliar church and i think that it's it's there but i mean it's such a thin line it's such a thin connection because the ecclesiology of now is so different than the ecclesiology of before that it creates these conflicts and these difficulties and something elliot that you have said uh that i love to hear you talk more about is the idea of traditional catholicism not so much, it's not really the right word, it's more of an incarnational Catholicism. Can you explain that? 
Well, it, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it gets back to the Eucharist. I mean, the Eucharist is the sign, the ultimate sign, the ultimate proof, the ultimate uh, assurance that Christ is incarnate for us and with us. And that goes to the very roots, the very origins of the Church. So there's nothing more traditional than the Eucharist. I mean, really, if you look at the Bible, the Eucharistic liturgy, the Eucharistic um, reality predates the, the biblical canon. So this is, you know, this is a funny thing. People say, well, you know, why do you say that you're, or why would anybody say that you're a traditional Catholic? And that's sort of like saying, why would you say you're a scriptural Catholic? Because as we know, scripture and tradition are the two uh, sort of streams, the, 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 um, the sort of hypostatic union of divine revelation, where it's, it's, it's literally incoherent to jettison tradition, just as it would be incoherent to jettison the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, saying that you're, or anything is, oh, well, that's sort of a traditional Catholic perspective. That's like saying, well, that's a scriptural Catholic perspective. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> right, redundant. Right. It's redundant. Right. You know, it's just Catholic. And um, I mean, traditional Catholicism is almost a tautology. It's like, of really, course. Because, you know, St. Paul talked, to, he wrote to Timothy, he said, hold fast to the traditions that were handed on to you. And the whole... The, the the primal way of speaking about the gospel, at least within among Christians, was the, the paradosis, you know, the, what is passed on, and that's all that's all tradition is, you know, and so when I say that traditional uh, commitments and traditional Catholicism, you might call it, is is really more incarnational. What I mean is this: the point you made about how Benedict the Sixteenth seemed to emphasize the hermeneutic of continuity as a matter of principle, almost willing it to be so. I, I agree that there is continuity. The problem is, it's very cerebral, you know, which was the experience I had as a convert. It, it's in the books. It's on paper. Right. You can't find a contradiction. You can't find a rupture. But in the lived reality, which I call the incarnational experience of Catholicism, it's apples and oranges. I mean, you bring up three of the most common type devotions uh, to your average Catholic these days, holy hours, spiritual rosaries, processions, you know, these things, they're just, what? What are you talking about? That's all gone. The problem is, this does create a lived and experienced rupture in the incarnational continuity. And what I mean is, the Church is the body of Christ over time, through space and time. And the way the Church is experienced is, is really just as important as the content of the teaching presented and preserved by the Church. And unfortunately, I think that the Church has succumbed to a very rationalistic, very um, sort of arid... And it's ironic, because people, you know, they, they poo-poo the, uh, the scholasticism and the old manualists, but really, there's this obsession with saying, well, if we look at the documents of Vatican II, or if we look at the catechism... <laughs> but 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 then there's this dichotomy of but if we look at life in the average parish right right it's just so it's 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 this abstract arid it's sort of catholicism um it's promissory catholicism you know it's like oh trust me we we believe all the right things it's just it doesn't seem to shape the life of your average parish that is where quote unquote traditional or traditionalism comes in let me, let me hold aspect. on, though. Yeah, go ahead. 
in your in your piece today uh, that, that you released, Steve, mm-hmm. you, you basically asked for everyone to refer to themselves as Catholic and not with any labels. Yeah. But the the church has always had you know different charisms of you know Benedictine spirituality. Uh, Franciscan, Jesuit, uh, all, all these different charisms. It's important to point out we're not trying to discuss charism right now, no, right? not at all. Not at all. Okay. I mean, Catholicism is an identity in and of itself. I mean, everybody yeah. in every charism of the church should agree on the fundamental tenets of the faith, should agree yeah. on you know an understanding of what liturgy should look like appropriate liturgy yeah. should have a form that you know that fits the universal aspect of the church i mean the marks yeah. of the church being one holy catholic and apostolic well the one the unity part i mean we don't really have that and anybody and i mentioned this in the article but anybody who's ever traveled and has had to just find a parish to get to sunday mass I mean, it's a nail biter. You're, you're looking at a phone book, going, "Hmm, this church sounds like it has a really good name. Maybe it'll have a good liturgy." Neon. Yeah, and then you get there, and they're they're having the multimedia experience, you know, where they're projecting the words of whatever songs they're singing uh, on the on the wall of the sanctuary with a bouncing ball. So, I mean, I've I've experienced this, you know. So it's the kind of thing where you, you just you laugh or you cry. But I mean. Reverence is optional. It's it's not something that's baked right in, and, well, and that's it's like a problem. Incarnate. Yeah, you know, it's docetic. That's a heresy that the docetism was the, or however it might be pronounced, docetism. It was the heresy that Christ merely appeared to be human. You know, mm-hmm. there was this there was this illusion. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, it's just I always try to bring things back to the Eucharist, and for me. If you look at when you when you say, "Oh well, this traditionalist perspective or whatever," ultimately it, it it comes across as what I call incarnational. It's saying that every aspect of the way we approach God has to be um, understood, subsumed to the wisdom wisdom of the Church. Whereas there's 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 this idea that well, we've got this core thing called the gospel which we can just adapt in any fashion we care to. You know, if we need to have a Navajo mass this week right. or a, a, a worker mass next week, oh, well, we've got this. We've got the USB of the gospel. We can we can download it into any platform. Mm-hmm. But, but probably, do, you, yeah. do you also, uh, you know, you don't include in that, you know, East versus West. No. You know, the, the, Eastern, the Eastern liturgies haven't, you know, haven't had that sort of change. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you know, they're harder to you know, remove that incarnational aspect. Well, here's, here's I think, a, a fundamental problem is this. When you look at Sacrosanctum Concilium, the, the, the Second Vatican Council document about liturgy, the, the doorway through which so much of liturgical change has come was in concessions to missionary contexts. And what this signals, I think, if you find that your average parish looks like a missionary parish, this is how this is how the new evangelization sort of gets confused, where liturgy needs to be a form, a, a guideline for how the faith is lived, not just sort of an arena where people can meet and kind of thrash out and just have fellowship. Like, it's an objective thing. And what I'm saying is that when the missionary concessions become 
absolutized. They become mm-hmm. ultimates. They become ends in themselves. You know, we have to adapt in every possible context from one parish. I mean, literally sometimes from one parish to the next. Yeah. Then it, it really is like the church itself is a mission field, which is bizarre. Because then what you've got is you've got the liturgy adapting week by week, parish by parish, to the needs of this and that community, instead of those missionary concessions being used as bridges to draw local communities into the depths of the liturgy. You know, I, th- I really think the the whole order has been inverted. So all I'm saying when I say that I don't even call myself a tr- traditional Catholic, I just say I have an incarnational focus. I mean, I, I want to embrace the full incarnate reality of Catholicism is that every aspect of how we worship and how we live is is transformed by by the truths of the faith. And, you know, for me, calling, if you call it traditionalist or whatever, Catholicism, traditionalism means humility because you are humbled by the wisdom of your ancestors and your forebears and your predecessors. Yeah. You know, you're humbled by, you, you do away with the illusion that, well, now we've got some new method. No. You know, Chesterton, he said everything. Every every time you come up with this a pithy quote, you can say Chesterton said it because he probably did. <laughs> but he has this one, one statement where he says, the church is like a large maze, you know, the mind of the church, where it has it has gone down every possible path. It's been down every possible dead end, and it's said, that's not where we go. This is the way. And so being traditional is just being humble about yeah. I have been born and reborn into this church and I'm open to it all you know yeah. so it, again it's the incarnational thing it's not don't call it tradition like because people think that traditionalism is atavism that we have to wear this kind of clothing or use these kind of words no but we have to be humble enough to be to 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 allow ourselves to be you know, transformed by the the prior wisdom of our ancestors and the church. Right. So that's my point. Well, I mean, but I mean, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned Chesterton, and I I thought for sure that you were going to talk about you know his quote about you know tradition being the democracy of the dead. You know, this idea that you know it's not just merely the arrogant oligarchy of those people who are walking about, but it's our ancestors have a say as well. We don't just because we're alive we don't have the privilege of of changing the truth you know sure i mean i'm paraphrasing but it's you know how tradition is rooted in history and it's rooted in ancestry and it's rooted in this idea of continuity um but but i mean i think that what's interesting is you know you do have that flip side where traditionalism you know you have on, on the one hand this adaptation to culture that you know is is very rooted in sacrosanctum concilium particularly paragraph 38 which talks about enculturation um, but on the flip side of that, you have tradition or traditionalism, which tends to be this sort of very finite worldview that is reactionary in nature. Um, you know, it embraces so much that is good from the preconciliar church that has been lost, but then it stops there, almost as if the church is a dead thing and it can't move forward mm-hmm. because there's so much fear of well, look what happens when we open ourselves up to the world. Look what happens when we move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and so, you know, there's this rejection. I mean, every time a new saint is added to the canon or, 
you know, anytime somebody suggests that maybe there's some opportunity to have a dialogue mass where the people participate in the responses of the servers or they they respond, you know, antiphonally with the, you know, with the scola and the chants. I mean, it's they start to become so uncomfortable at the idea of anything that's done differently that it's almost like they kill the idea of of organic development, which is what was supposed to happen with the mm-hmm. liturgy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's healthy either. Yeah, no, I mean, if there are excesses, you know, uh, extremes in traditionalism, which I would call atavism, a sort of cultic devotion to, you know, really, and Muslims have this, the hadith, where they follow the the, the way the prophet put on his pants and the way he combed his hair and the way he beat his wives, whatever. It's all this extrinsic stuff that, you know, you have to match those criteria. There is a countervailing error, which is, you could call it presentism, is that it really doesn't matter what the precedents were, what our predecessors, what our forebears did. We just, we're here now, and let's just preach the gospel in any way that kind of fits right now. And that is an error, where when you, you subject the, the fullness, the full integrity and the coherence of the gospel, which, which is always a liturgical gospel. That's something that, I mean, that is a paradigm shift that, that I think even a lot of converts don't get that you don't convert from one set of doctrines to another. You convert from a rationalistic, verbal, individualistic type faith to a fundamentally incarnational, liturgical, Eucharistic, and therefore humble because you're always looking backwards, you know, sort of faith. I mean, it's a paradigm shift. So the is the... Is, yeah, go ahead. So is the faith something that we think... Or, or something that we pray. Well, here's because yeah. because when when you said, uh, you know, the excess is trying to apply cultural norms to to make to make the mass seem more relevant. It, to me, that's about how we think, you know. But that's not what the church teaches. How we pray is how we believe. You know, lex orandi, lex credendi. It's not how we think is how we believe. It's not how we are catechized, it's how we believe, it's how we pray. Right, and that's the incarnational thing. I mean, in the Gospels, we see how Jesus is spoken of as teaching by word and deed. And um, the things he did, the miracles he performed, were he was teaching. He didn't even have to use words necessarily. You know, and the, the great riddle, which I guess we'll never know until heaven, about the woman caught in adultery. What did he write on the ground? Right. We don't know. But whatever he did there, incarnationally, in the very action of his body as the, the incarnate word, that was a teaching moment. And so, yeah, no, I mean, that's the funny thing. I learned, it's, it's funny, when I became a Catholic in Taiwan, I went to masses 90% of the time in Chinese, a language mm-hmm. I was learning then. So in a way, I was thrust back into when a time when, you know, say it was all it's all Greek to me, it's all Latin to me. I there were times, many times, I literally did not know what was being prayed, right? And yet somehow I was buoyed up by the faith and the 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 the, uh, the worship, the prayers of all those believers around me. And again, I was incarnate at a pre or sort of sub rational level. So, Scott, you're talking about, is it what we think? No, because I became a Catholic in a lot of ways without being able to think about what was I, I was experiencing in the Mass. It was incarnational. And, you know, 
again, the funny thing about being in Taiwan is 1949, Mao Zedong, the communists, kicked out the nationalists and, and Christian and Western influence. You had thousands of missionaries who went to Korea, Philippines, and Taiwan in large part. And so it was funny in Taiwan, I would go to these old parishes and I'd go in their libraries and stuff and I'd find these ancient, um, you know, uh, catechesis books and ancient just uh, prayer books because a lot of the church resources in Taiwan are still caught in amber because they were all brought over literally in 1950 even yeah. before the Second Vatican Council. So it's right. funny, a lot of the stuff I imbibed and just the sort of bias I had, that I was like, well, this is Catholicism, would have made me into a traditionalist, according to the American narrative. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm not a, I don't even know what that means. I didn't even know what traditionalism was until uh, one or two years ago. I mean, honestly. I mean, the thing that bugs me about traditionalism, I mean, I've attended the traditional Latin Mass exclusively for the past decade. I started in 2004, so this is the 10th year. To me, I think what bothers me is this idea of traditionalism as sort of this clique or this subgroup or this ideology to which I have to subscribe whole and entire, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, I'm seeking out the truths of the faith in their most profound expression and manifestation. And the reason why, for example, that I love the traditional Latin mass is because I find that it more perfectly espouses an atmosphere, you know, and an anthropology of worship that is sacrificial in nature, that is that is sort of a, a worthwhile and pleasing thing to God, um, you know, that, that seeks reverence and that keeps man out of the center and keeps God at the center. And, you know, this, this profound prayer, I mean, when you read through the prayers of the Missal, even if you're not familiar at all with the Mass, and it's not about the Latin, I mean... Look, Latin serves a purpose within the church. You know, if you want to know about it, read Pope St. John the Twenty-Third's Apostolic Constitution, Veterum Sapientia. You know, a lot of people see him as, well, he's the guy who invoked the council, and because of him we have the new mass, and it's in the vernacular. But, I mean, he wrote an apostolic constitution, which is a much higher level of authority document than an encyclical, saying, hey, Latin, guys, is really important because not only is it a dead language, which makes it perfect for expressing the unchanging truths of the church, but because it's a language that belongs to no people, you know, it, it expresses that universal character. It gives rise to no jealousies and no preferences. I mean, we can all look to Latin as an ecclesial language because no nation claims it as their own. They don't get preference out of this language. And there's something to be said you know, for studying that document and for understanding the importance of Latin. But Latin isn't the reason why the traditional mass is incredible. The traditional mass is incredible because of the, the theology of the prayers, the theology of the worship, the atmosphere of supplication, the, you know, the, the rubrics, the gestures, that every little thing has been thought out so carefully. And it also has so much in common with the Eastern rites of the church, which do get short shrift, but I mean, I have friends whose parents escaped to the Byzantine churches of, of Detroit, you know, during the 1970s when everything went crazy and the diocese just, you know, was experimenting with liturgy to the point where it was scandalous. And so they went to the Byzantine parishes because they didn't have the opportunity. They were doing the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which is over a thousand years old, you know. And so these guys grew up Byzantine, but by, but by right... You know, and by canon law, they were Roman Catholics. And they told me 
the the traditional mass has so much more in common with the Ruthenian rite that we grew up with than the Novus Ordo has in common with either one. And it's it's this continuity across the church of this is the way that we pray and this is the way that we worship and this is sort of the the sacred space that we enter into. And that's something that uh, I don't think people can fully understand. I mean, it's the same thing when it comes to baptism. All of my children... Uh, except the oldest, have been baptized according to the traditional rite. Not just because, hey, it's older, but there are prayers of exorcism in that rite that you don't get in a modern baptism. Like, it's just not available. And we're born into this world in a state of original sin, and that means we come into this world under the devil's power. We want that power. You know, the power of exorcism to drive the devil away from the child because this is something that we know is going to be a problem throughout our entire lives. We want the blessing of exercised salt and exercised water coming together as holy water. Exorcists who actually deal with the possessed will tell you how much more powerful sacramentals are that are blessed in the old rite against demons. There is a, an ontological character to this stuff. And so what we should be doing is seeking out what are these most profound ways of, of praying and worshiping, um, not just because they're old, but because they're good, because they're better. I, I, I don't know. I feel like it's so hard for people to understand why. And, and we're all born in the, in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I mean, we didn't grow up with the old mass. Nope. But those of us who have begun to discover it, I mean, it's like there's no going back once you get there. Yeah, I did not go to what is called the traditional Latin mass, quote, 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 until, I mean, literally maybe in the last year. It, it didn't mean anything to me um, because I was I didn't realize there were issues there. But I'll, I'll just sort of float something out there. One thing I like to say is this. If the Novus Ordo mass wants to be called the New Order mass, then let's call it the New Mass. And that's what I do. Because, how do I say, once language gets corrupted and manipulated, reality has a hard time keeping pace. And um, once the mass is relegated or sort of um, stigmatized as the traditional Latin, therefore obscure and atavistic and whatever mass, mm -hmm. then reality is going to follow suit. And so something I've taken up is... When I say I, I attended, or I, I'm sorry, I assisted at Mass, I mean the Mass that's been around since the 5th century. Right. Whereas, because um, our pastors and the magisterium has chosen to uh, implement the Novus Ordo Missae, when I attend that, I call it the New Mass. And it's interesting, because it, it, it's, it's one of those little cognitive dissonance, you know, grenades I throw out, where I say, oh yeah, I went to the New Mass last week, and people say, huh? It just there's this slight tremor of confusion. And I'll say, but normally I assist at the mass at uh, you know St. Joseph's or whatever it might be, and that's the reality. It's it's that if traditionalism means being in love with the full scope of the church's patrimony, mm -hmm. then I guess I'm a traditionalist. And if that means I am not fully just in love with the endless efforts to adapt and improvise, then I guess that makes me one of the uncool kids. But I'm saying that, <laughs> you know, 
language is important, and 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 so. I mean, it's the same thing with the extraordinary. Even, I don't even call it the traditional Latin mass. You know, these these are canonical issues. I say the mass. Well, I mean, it's the same thing with using the term extraordinary form. I mean, it makes it sound like it's something that only happens, you know, under unusual circumstances, and it's like that's not <laughs> that's not right. the history that this. This illustrious prayer of the church enjoys. I mean, it, it was around for 15 centuries. Where were we? Yeah. I mean, objectively, if you if you count up the number of masses which have been said, I mean, yeah. And yes, granted, we're we're, we're talking about the Latin rite. Fine. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's so true that when you look at the tranquility, the liturgical tranquility of some of the Eastern rites, they don't get it. They just don't understand. Why would you tamper with the primary way the faith is taught mm-hmm. and lived, and that's right. my point. Again, if you want to say this, traditional Catholicism is incarnational Catholicism, and incarnational Catholicism is liturgical Catholicism because liturgical Catholicism is Eucharistic. It's it's a it's a perfect circle, you know. And and I come back to what the Benedictine monk said. He said that the Eucharist is the best form of evangelism the Church has. If we can get people to fall in love with the Eucharist again, a lot of the other problems are going to sort themselves out. The, the, the parish committees and the, the action plans and the strategies and this and that are going to be worse than, than redundant. You know? and, and I think it really does tie back into what Scott was saying about Mary, Our Lady, that she is the source of the flesh we participate in in the eucharist and that's deep yeah it is that you know mad props to mary because (laughs) i'm serious um anyway um i've got a tear in my eye now no but um it it all ties together and that for me was what what i could not resist about catholicism that it wasn't even so much simply a both and religion i know that's thrown around a lot it it really is a kind of all or nothing religion where everything fits and it all the fragments that Protestants value, you know, things about scripture and, and personal devotion, I didn't jettison those when I became Catholic. I simply embraced them on a higher level, at a, yeah. in a larger uh, wholeness, and which is what Catholicism means. Kata holos means according to the whole, according to the fullness. And um, I just think that less is more these days. I think that if we could, could, could ratchet back the activism to Eucharistic adoration, um, Eucharistic piety, most of the issues in the church would quickly start to sort themselves out. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just a traditionalist, huh? Well, it's been a good conversation. You know, there's obviously a lot more to talk about, and we can revisit these again. Uh, I'd love to have you guys back on. So thank you for... Yeah, thank you for being I'm on in. tonight. I think we could probably, you know, we could talk all night, but for the sake of our listeners, we'll end it here. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of Signal Media, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, alloneword.com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter again at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. 
If you feel that we have provided you with something of value, please, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but helps us keep food on the table, and that's kind of important. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.